interesting lunch and the soup as usual was really super um so remember uh uh well I'll, I'll maybe deal first with what we're having next week which is uh, is privacy a thing of the past in today's digital world and the speaker will be uh james graham with knute uh, uh moderating knute peterson and james is an associate professor and founding member of the University of Lethbridge Department of News Me uh, New Media, uh, and in his in the private sector, uh, Graham is um, James Graham is the founder and CEO of would have helped if I put my glasses on. Uh, Neo, uh, I have to do that. I can't read it all. Uh, Neo Spatial Corp, an augmented reality virtual reality company. So that'll be an interesting topic, very timely with our, all the th changes that are happening. Now, just remember, oh, we already got people lined up. Good. Uh, state your name, and your preamble has to be very brief, and your question. One, one question, if, if, if we have time, you can come back for a second one. So, Barb, I'll invite Jill back to the podium. My name is Barb Phillips, and thank you, Jill. That was so informative, and I just know Arches is in good hands with you. My question is this, the money part. Uh, you said you got funding from uh, our provincial government. Could you expand on what is the cost for all the leasehold improvements and, and running Arches in Lethbridge? You bet. Uh, so because Arches has had such incredible expansion over the last two years, uh, originally most of Arches funding was provided through the Alberta Community Council of HIV because primarily our mandate originally had been um, preventing the transmission of HIV and hepatitis, counseling folks who are HIV positive, providing subsidized transportation costs. We still do all of those things uh, and so we still receive our funding from there. Then we've had additional grants through the years in order to allow us to expand. Um, we've taken over the Housing First initiative which is funneled through the City of Lethbridge. Um, these specific funds for the supervised consumption facility uh, do come from the province and for our first year of operational costs as well as our capital costs, so the renovations and that sort of thing, uh, it's about two million dollars. Thank you. Hello. Hi, fellow Rotarian. Hello. Jill. Hi. Henning Mundell. Um, you mentioned about the nurses on duty there. My question is, relates to the medical, but specifically, do you have any relation, specific relationship, formal relationship to a clinic or doctors? You were mentioning very early on about prescribing antibiotics. Who does that? So we will have a nurse practitioner on site who has almost she the can same, prescribe? yeah, they have almost the same scope of practice as a doctor. So a nurse practitioner can do prescriptions. We will not be prescribing um, like opioids or any serious medications. Uh, so it'll be antibiotic specific. Um, the registered nurses, there will be two that operate in the drug consumption room as well as the observation room, then an additional one in each of the two clinics. So we'll have four either registered nurses or LPNs on site, um, two at all times. So two between the hours of 9 a.m. and 2 a.m. Between 8.30 and 4.30, Monday to Friday, there will be four nurses on site. Hi, Mike McKagan. Um, at Shambhala Music Festival last year in the Kootenays, 
they had set up where they were doing some drug testing for yeah. people. Will you have anything of that nature? I'm so glad that you asked this. We were discussing this at my table here, and I said, I really hope someone asks about drug testing. Um, we will not. So some facilities internationally have had drug testing at their supervised consumption services. Studies have shown a couple things. Number one, um, so even if the drugs come back as laced with, say, fentanyl or carfentanil, something that the user didn't know, uh, it doesn't generally, about 95% of the time, it doesn't deter the drug use because the nature of addiction is such that, A, I've spent my money, which sometimes is very difficult for people who are street involved or homeless, um, so I've spent my money or resources to acquire these drugs, and B, I just really need the substance because I'm going through withdrawal. So generally speaking, it doesn't deter people from use anyways. Um, additionally, so when, we, when Arches submitted our application to the federal government, the costs of that were not included from the, our provincial budget. So I've just, I just saw an article this morning, actually, and I'm not sure the validity of this, uh, but it was stating that the federal government is right now considering uh, approving those mass spectrometers. That's really the only way to realist or to, um, yeah, to analyze drugs in any sort of really valid way. Uh, and those machines, a mass spectrometer costs between eighty and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So since that budget, or since those those funds weren't provided in our initial budget, we would have to do independent fundraising to earn those dollars. Um, which would have been quite onerous in Lethbridge specifically, I think. Um, so, and then also, actually those mass spectrometers can become a vehicle for drug dealers to come into the facility, test their product, and then have a means of bragging about the quality or the purity of their product, which you would never think of, but it happens, and, and so we don't want to be providing that. So, you know, Joe comes in and gets his cocaine tested and then can leave and say, my cocaine's 97% pure, I got it tested down at Arches. We don't want that. So, <laughs> no, we will not be. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Judy Shepard. Um, just uh, applicable to the previous question, for me it's very obvious that to have a complete program, we need to have um, pharmaceutical grade drugs that are provided. We don't want people going out in the community supporting uh, petty crime and drug dealers. And anyway, that's not my question, but <laughs> just I'll speak to um, it though. <laughs> okay, um, so I am going to um, generally say a few things about location, mm -hmm. and then you can comment on it. So, you said that you didn't want the site um, neighboring a residential area, mm -hmm. but I want to point out to you that you are neighboring a residential area because the entire downtown core has at least 1,400 senior residents and you are only one block away from the Garden View Lodge, which has had um, middle of the night entry through the ground floor windows. Mm -hmm. So you are really bordering the residential area. So my question is, um, was there consideration given and was there any possibility of locating the site closer to the homeless shelter that is north of the bridge so it wouldn't require people coming across the bridge? Um, <coughs> and then a comment just related to this whole problem. Um, we still don't have, as far as I can make out from what you've said, we still don't have a drop-in center that is a place where people can come, socialize, spend the day if they care to, and be warm. Yes. So actually, Judy, if you want to stay there, I just want to make sure I cover everything that you mentioned. Um, as far as the location goes, we had to work within the facilities that were available for us. Unfortunately, there was nothing available that was on the north side of the highway. Um, 
also we had to work within our budget constraints. So the government wasn't willing to build a new facility, unfortunately, so we are leasing the space at the Pulse. Uh, and the reason that we chose that facility compared to the other two, which would have been even closer to the downtown core, um, was because the, the cost was something that we could work with. Um, I was actually at Garden View doing a presentation last week in terms of the population that they're seeing crossing. Um, you're absolutely correct. They are seeing a large amount of kind of transient populations walking across their property. Uh, they're experiencing needle debris, panhandling, all sorts of stuff. So I certainly empathize with that group and with the residents who live there. Um, unfortunately, the reality is, unless we went out to the industrial end of town or something, it's very difficult to be more than two blocks away from any residence. Uh, when we look at being right into the downtown core thick of things, we do have new condos that have gone up. We wanted to avoid that. So I do appreciate that, yes, it is relatively close to Garden View, but our next door neighbors are not residential. So I, I, I yes, I, I didn't mean to diminish or to not acknowledge that it is very close to that property. Um, in terms of the prescription drug, uh, uh, prescription narcotics, I agree with you 100%. Um, again, the article that I read just this morning was talking about that and, and the potential decriminalization. So the decriminalization issue is a different one than the availability of prescription nar narcotics so that people could come in um, and say have prescription grade heroin, which is provided by the government, and you're, you're dead right that that's when we're actually going to see an impact on things like petty crime. I don't have actual statistics, but the majority of petty crime that takes place in Lethbridge is very much related to drug-seeking behaviors. So as long as people have to find either sex trade work or break and enters or whatever in order to finance their drug use, then you're right. We're, we don't anticipate that this facility will reduce the overall uh, crime levels in Lethbridge. Yeah. So as to location, like my vision would be to have I mean, if it were feasible, where they've already got uh, food pantries and soup kitchen and uh, shelter to have a wonderful drop-in center and a safe injection site all in the same area. We so would that, have loved yeah, that. That's so, and I mm -hmm. realize you have to work within the mm -hmm. parameters of your funding and yeah. government support, but I think we need to set a vision uh, and try to work towards that vision. The, uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. I agree. Hello. Hi, Jill. My name is Jessica Bonnerchuk. Um, I loved everything that you said. I'm just wondering, I realize and I can appreciate that nursing is already a really taxing profession. I'm just curious because I imagine that these nurses are going to be experiencing quite a intense workload. So I'm just wondering, is there any other like uh, support that we're going to have for your workers, for your staff outside of Absolutely. their job. Great question. Um, so I've just actually received certification from CMHA. Um, many of us are familiar with occupational health and safety legislation. Uh, right now the provincial government is considering uh, making it mandatory for organizations over a certain number of employees and or organizations that deal with high-level trauma to also implement psychological health and safety in the workplace. So I've just been trained and certified in that. Uh, we're also in discussions with the police to have our agency uh, with the ability to provide the 
the Road to Mental Readiness, which is the mental health program that first responders go through. Um, in addition to that, and this is a really great point, and I'm glad you brought this up, Jessica. Uh, so the nurses that are in here, there needs to be one nurse at all times. But like I said, there will be one nurse in here, one in here, and then so the three nurses that are on this side of the facility will rotate through. So there might be an addictions counselor and a nurse in here, or a harm reduction specialist and a nurse in here. So every hour they rotate through, and so they're only in there one one hour for every three hours because we recognize that to, to ask somebody to stand in there for eight hours and watch people overdose and watch people do drugs is going to be hugely taxing to them. So we do have some strategies in place to try and, and minimize that. Cool. Thank yeah. you. Hi, Bev. Thanks so much, Jill. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. <coughs> you mentioned the party pack that's yes. given out with the 10 needles. So I'm just wondering, within that pack, is there also a is some kind of a, uh, a package so that people can put their needles in it and then bring that back to you or, or get rid of it? And the other question is, what about the rest of the facility? You haven't mentioned yes. it. Uh, great. So the first, there isn't. So within the party pack, it's just like in a brown paper lunch bag, it looks like. Okay. However, we do have a small black, uh, it's like an individual sized sharps container. It could go in someone's okay. pocket. It'll, excuse me, it'll only hold anywhere 10, maybe 15 needles within it. We strongly encourage people to take those as well as our larger sharps containers. So for example, we have some clients who come in once a month, they get 400 needles for the month. They take a large sharps container with them. When they come back for the next month for their supplies, they bring that sharps container in full. We give them a new one. So we certainly do encourage that. It's tricky because we can talk till we're blue in the face about don't drop needles. And even a responsible drug user, once they're under the influence of that drug, can make a very different decision than they would have before they were under the influence of that drug. Um, also, uh, what I thought you were gonna ask, which I should probably mention, within each of those party packs, there is a referral sheet. So it's numbers that you can call if you want help. Oh and a location of where the safe needle disposal boxes are, the, the external like okay. outdoor ones in town. So those things are listed in every single one of the, the materials that we hand out. Um, in terms of this other half of the building, so this is all the staff and services that are currently located at Arches that will move here. So this is the Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 4.30 services, things like our housing team, um, our educators, outreach, harm reduction, um, our, our, this clinic on this side is more oriented towards HIV and hepatitis C. We also need to recognize that Arches has a large clientele that are not drug users. So we have many HIV, hepatitis C, gay men, um, sex trade workers, people who are not drug users. And so especially, so when we look at HIV rates, we know that certain populations are disproportionately affected. Um, those being gay men's health population as well as immigrant populations because oftentimes those folks are coming from countries where HIV is still endemic. And so for those folks, especially many immigrants, um, and they come into Arches currently, and they'll have three or four kids in tow, and that's not really an appropriate space if they have to walk through the other half of the facility where there's drug use taking place. So we wanted to have a separate clinic. Also, pregnancy testing and pregnancy counseling might take place there. So um, the two teal spaces, one on this side and one on the other side of that yellow kind of foyer area, those are counseling rooms. So that's where we might have more formal intensive counseling that takes place. But yeah, this side of the facility is only, so the, where it's, I don't know if you can read that, but it says second entry up at the top. So that's the street side entry and clients who are accessing this, it would be clients who are there by appointment. It sounds like you're a great employer for Lethbridge. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Hi, uh, my name is Joseph. I was just wondering what the, um, like what the intent behind the 15 minute wait 
uh, you set up was, and if that's like the average, if there's like a um, thought that went into it on how, yeah. if that's like the average time it takes before you see an overdose yeah. occur or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so within this larger green space where people are actually consuming their drugs, there's a maximum of 45 minutes where someone can be in there. Um, that's based on what we heard from our travels in Europe and what we, the information we received from the drug user survey that we did as far as how long do you typically engage in your drug use, especially for injection users. There's kind of a balance because you don't want to rush somebody where they're digging for needles and they're poking at themselves and causing abscesses and rupturing veins and that sort of thing. So you want to allow enough time that they aren't rushed and they can do their, their drug use uh, comfortably. At the same time, we also recognize we need to have a high enough turnover and volume that if somebody comes in and all six of these injection booths are al already occupied, that they're not sitting in the waiting room for 20 minutes because frankly they won't. Mm. Um, if they're needing to use their drugs and they have to wait more than five minutes, then they'll just leave and use in the alley like they would have before. Um, so we need to keep people moving through here. So after their 45 minutes, and if they're done in 15, they can certainly leave earlier than that. It's a 45 minute max. Then after that, then yes, they have to stay in that darker green observation space for a minimum of 15 minutes, maximum of an hour. The drugs of choice right now are generally the opioids, so they're downers. So they subdue people and they make them, they kind of incapacitate people oftentimes. Um, so that 15 minute window is because if someone's going to enter an overdose, it'll happen within that first 15 minutes. It's also so that we can monitor people because another question that a lot of community members, particularly the business owners around this facility have had is, so if somebody uses their drugs and then they wait for 15 minutes and then they wander out on the street and they're high as a kite and they're stumbling around, that's going to be burdensome for the neighborhood businesses. If somebody is incapacitated and out of their mind high, then we're not going to, then we'll, we'll have them stay in that room longer. So, I mean, yes, it may happen that people do leave the facility and they're under the influence of drugs, but right now they're using Ingalt Gardens and downtown and they're under the influence of drugs in public anyways. And really it's no different than if someone is an alcoholic and they sit at a bar all afternoon and then they leave the bar inebriated. There's not a lot we can do to control that um, as long as they're not being a public nuisance. And if they are, then we call either the DOT team or the police. Thank you. you Douglas Mitchell, I, I appreciate the fact that there's a need for this, mm -hmm. enabling these people to have a place so they can do it. My concern is, what is the long-term objective? Surely it has to be reducing the reliance on these mostly illegal drugs. Yeah. And I would like to know, I don't see anything in there that indicates to me that you're going to record and analyze data from these people. Can you tell me, are you addressing this issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the enabling thing I'll address first. Um, generally speaking, the argument of enabling drug use is based on the philosophy that we're making it too easy for folks and that why would anybody quit when they have somewhere that's warm and safe and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's all kind of based on the underlying ideology of someone hitting rock bottom. And I've, I've said this before in, in similar situations as this, if someone is homeless or street involved and they're living underneath a bridge and they're p potentially engaging in sex trade work, they've lost their children, they don't have employment, they're no contact with their family, 
I'm not sure that there is a rock bottom. What's rock bottom if that's not rock bottom? So we know that, that the enabling argument that people are using whether or not they have a facility like this to use in. Um, we do exist along a spectrum of other services. So even though the primary purpose of supervised consumption isn't abstinence, it's not to get people to quit using drugs, um, it does have that side effect. So like I said, the increased uptake to treatment of 30%, that is an outcome and a measurement that we're recording. Uh, as far as our outcomes, our measurements, and our statistical data that we're recording, every person who walks through that facility, just like currently at Arches, we have to track. So we get a name, we track that they were there and what they were there for, if they got supplies, how many supplies they got. Um, through the actual drug consumption room, it will be similar. So who was here today, how much did they use, what did they use, et cetera. Did they meet with an addictions counselor? So every staff, anytime they engage in a conversation, if they provide a referral to detox or treatment, um, if they provide HIV or hepatitis C training, any of those things do get recorded. So we, there's a lot of data. We do have to be responsible to both our funding as well as to the federal government so that we can continue to, to have operations. If we're not doing anything, then there's no point in them wasting the money on it. So. Short follow-up, um, in dealing with these problems, um, surely professional counseling must be part of this, yep. and I wonder how that is being met. Yeah, so there are addictions counselors on site. Um, there are four that will be on site between the hours of 8.30 and 4.30 Monday to Friday, and there will be one that's there uh, on the weekends and in the evenings until two o'clock in the morning as well. So there is addictions counseling available during all hours of operational hours. <laughs> uh, Ken Sears. Uh, got a whole bunch of questions, a whole bunch of comments I couldn't make, but I want to just focus really tightly on quantifying the, the issue here. Um, the last numbers I heard, and I don't know if they're reliable, were an estimate of three to 6,000 yes. addicts in the city of Lethbridge. Yes. Of that three to 6,000, what percentage are homeless? Because as you know and I know, a, great, a large number of an addict population are actually working, housed, and, and relatively functional in society. Yep. So the quanti I guess to quantify, how many people are we really talking about here for a street population? Great question, and, and that points out a really important fact that also was discussed at my table during the lunch hour, is that these services are not intended, I mean, certainly we're inclusive and anyone is welcome to enter the facility and to access services, but the, the target population is homeless and street involved. So that does leave a large number of people who have either become addicted to opiates because of prescription use, um, they're, they're more kind of well hidden about it, it's not as visible a situation. Um, however, for homeless and street involved folks, our data, so we tracked our data, uh, our reporting period for the, f the first half of the current fiscal year, so the six months preceding October 31st, uh, we served 648 clients only from a harm reduction perspective. So those are people who have come in just to access supplies. So that doesn't include our HIV and Hep C positive, uh, the people who might come in to access our clinic, our housing clients, et cetera, et cetera. So of those 650 people, our estimate is that about three quarters of them are either homeless or street involved. So people who are couch surfing, people who are transient and coming through, they've just been released from corrections, they're staying at the shelter, all of these different people. So I would estimate that about 500, 400 to 500, somewhere in there. One last question, this is sort of looking into the future. As far as I'm aware, there's only one methadone clinic in Lethbridge. It's, there's two now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they are not 
particularly close either to the shelter or to the, the, the safe yeah. injection site. Is there any, are you aware of any talk about moving a methadone clinic closer to this? Another great question. Um, so there are, so for those of you who aren't aware, the, the kind of traditional treatment model that we have with substance users is that they go to detox for a week and then they would enter treatment. Uh, that doesn't work with opiate users because the withdrawal from the opiates is so in intense and so long term that there needs to be a system to, for lack of a better term, wean people off of the opiates. So those are opiate agonist therapies that are referred to as oats in the drug community. Um, those are things like methadone and suboxone. So they're intended to, they prevent a person from going through the intense withdrawal, so they still stimulate the opiate receptors in someone's body, but they don't provide that high, so they don't incapacitate someone, which means it's possible for people to still maintain employment, but not be going through withdrawal, that kind of thing. Uh, there are two clinics in town. There's ACT Medical Clinic and um, Prairie Treatment Clinic. ACT Medical Clinic is right next to Guardian, very close to The Hague. So it is within the downtown core, but you're right, not, I'm not sure where you went to, but there you are. Um, but you're right, not very close to the supervised consumption facility. However, Prairie Treatment Clinic is very close to the supervised consumption facility. Um, so it is, for those of you who have known Lethbridge long enough where the old Tim Hortons used to be on Stafford and 3rd, um, just east of that, so there's like a vision place, Pearl Vision or something is there. Um, right next to that vision place, there is one. Uh, we have talked about, or, or at least we've been asked about whether we're interested in implementing those types of services at our facility. The issue there is that if I'm someone who's in recovery and I'm trying to abstain from drug use, to ask me to come to a place where there's drug use taking place in order to get my opiate agonist therapy is pretty difficult. Um, but we have partnerships with both of those clinics and have a streamlined referral process to get people hooked up with those clinics. Hi, Jill. Chris Lowings, and I just want to say I'm so excited, well, not excited, I guess that's the wrong word, but so uh, glad, so glad that um, the supervised injection site is here, and it sounds like you guys have a great vision. Uh, my question is uh, twofold. So we know that um, a lot of the homeless and um, street drug users are uh, functionally illiterate and so with that with all of the um, forms that you give out and everything else how you address that as well as the immigrant population um, that may not access your stream like the sort of streamlined services uh, how do you manage with that Absolutely. Uh, LFS does provide translators if there is an immigrant person who uh, doesn't have the English or the literacy skills. Um, so in the first place, navigating the healthcare system when you're HIV or hepatitis C positive is very difficult in Lethbridge. Um, you can't receive treatment in Lethbridge if you're HIV positive. You have to go to the Southern Alberta Clinic or SAC in Calgary. We do now have HCV or hepatitis C treatment in Lethbridge, so that's great. Um, but we provide uh, a translator, well we don't, but LFS provides a translator in cases where that's necessary. And as far as the intake process goes with a potential drug user who might have literacy problems, our staff sit down. So that's not just a take these forms, 
read them, sign them, and give them back to us. We sit down in a private room with the first-time client, um, and we create a file with them, and we walk through verbally what all of the policies and procedures, what the expectations are of the facility. We collect that information for them. Um, I currently do uh, presentations and information sessions with the inmates out at Lethbridge Correctional every Wednesday night, and we use a very similar structure. We never assume literacy. We assume illiteracy, honestly, unless we know otherwise, because that can be a very sensitive issue for folks if you ask them to fill out paperwork. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very much in tune with that and I really appreciate your acknowledgement of that. Hi, thank you for a great presentation. My name's Karen Tui. Uh, I really had two questions. One was if um, this is the only facility in Alberta, do you envision people from surrounding areas, drug? Uh, it's not the only facility in Alberta. So oh. there are facilities that have been approved in Edmonton and Calgary. Red Deer has submitted an application as well. Uh, Grand Prairie is supposed to be submitting an application. Uh, Medicine Hat, we also anticipate submitting an application within the next six months. So in southern Alberta, uh, not including Calgary, we would be the only one in our health zone. So Lethbridge, Tabor, Medicine Hat, Cardston, that area. Um, the, again, so the, the, these services are oriented towards homeless and street-involved populations. If I'm someone who's housed or who has a vehicle, I'm not going to come and use this facility likely because I have somewhere that's safe and warm to use already. So people aren't going to probably drive from Tabor or drive from Cardston. And if I'm homeless or street-involved, I really have no way to get, right? So I, might, I could hitchhike feasibly. Um, but no, we, we know from statistical data and surveys that have been done, it doesn't attract new drug users. Sites like this just facilitate safer use for people who are currently using in that community. If I may ask a second one. Yeah. Um, so say um, a user comes in and they have a fentanyl and it's an overdose. Mm -hmm. Will that happen within a reasonable amount of time before they leave that you would catch this or oh yeah yeah oh. that 15 minutes that they're in the observational space fentanyl is such a potent drug that an overdose will often happen immediately especially through injection so many times users who have overdosed they come to and the needle is still in their arm and they've been revived and they have no memory of even using the, the product um, so it's it's very unlikely that it would take 15 minutes or longer for an overdose to set in and, and we would respond in the same, so our staff will be trained to respond in the same way that a paramedic or a doctor would. So we won't be calling 911 and we won't be going unless that person is unable to resuscitate and at that point it's a fatality. On that note, there has never been a fatality in a supervised consumption facility anywhere in the world in the history of supervised consumption. This is, this is, this is the last question. Hi, my name is Catherine and thanks for the presentation. It was very informative. Uh, as a newly retired nurse, I would like to, and having worked in the emergency department, how are you going to keep yourself safe? Will there be security on site? Because I can see there might be a potential for some issues. Uh, great question. So there is definitely a potential for some issues, especially if people are using stimulants. So like I said, opioids are kind of the, the drug of choice right now, and they generally incapacitate a person. People don't get angry when they're on the opiates. Um, some stimulants, so for example, meth, uh, meth or methamphetamine, crystal meth, you may have heard it referred to as, that's one that sometimes can cause people to go a little nutty afterwards, and it's an upper, it's a stimulant. Um, and we can certainly have some issues 
the thing is, currently, we're dealing with this population already. We have these exact same folks coming into Arches already. We're in a very contained space. We have rival gang members who sit across the foyer from one, one another, and they're repping their colors and looking at each other sideways. And we just, we keep an eye, and we look at them, and we say, you guys, like, not in here. Keep it out. We, you know, this can't happen in here. And they respect that. In the four years that we've been at Arches, uh, our current management, um, we've had to call police four times. Two of those were because of suicidal ideations. Uh, one was because of an altercation between two clients, and one was because of threats that were issued towards staff. I really do honestly believe, and this isn't naivete, um, I've worked in this field for a long time, I really do honestly believe that if people are treated with respect, they will treat you with respect. Um, we have got staff who are very highly trained in how to deal with substance users and how to de-escalate. So for example, if someone is on methamphetamine, uh, oftentimes there's extreme paranoia. So they'll get convinced that there's bug devices in the walls or in the light switches or in the, the fixtures. Um, sometimes I, I get accused of being an undercover police officer like on a weekly basis. There's something about me that our clients think I'm an undercover police officer. Um, in those cases, I'm not the person to deal with that person. If they're convinced I'm an undercover police officer, then I'm going to tag team out to one of my staff who can have a better rapport and relationship without them escalating. Um, if they're looking for bugs and devices in the walls, we look with them. We don't try and convince people that their reality is not reality. That's a big difference between when you go to the hospital, and that's not a criticism of hospital staff, it's that you're working within a different framework and that you don't have the resources and the ability to engage in that kind of relationship with folks. Um, so we can really de-escalate a lot of stuff before it gets to that point. That being said, at the end of the day, we do anticipate that there may be some things that are beyond our control. In that case, we call the police. Um, all of our staff will be trained in nonviolent crisis prevention and intervention, so we'll know how to do the basic self-defense, takedown, pin type things. That is a last, last resort. And really anyone who works in mental health, addictions, developmental disabilities, that's a reality for those folks who work in those fields. So I, I don't mean to minimize that risk. It certainly is a risk. However, it comes, it's kind of the nature of the beast. It comes with the territory. Um, we'll be as prepared as we can to deal with that, and the police are a very short distance away from us with the location that we're at, so. so. Wow, uh, wh uh, what information Jill has brought us. Uh, thank you very much.